Our gracious Heavenly Father, we open up your holy word once again, remembering that this is your revelation, this is how you have revealed yourself to us. And Father, this morning, especially in Revelation 4, we approach this passage with a sense of excitement and anticipation, joy, especially in light of the times that we're living in, Father, where there's so much hurt and pain and hatred and violence taking place, not only in our country, but all over the world. And so we pray for your special grace this morning, that, Father, you would help us to live in the light of the things that you have for us today. We pray for humble, teachable hearts, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 is our text for this morning. And we'll get into Revelation 5 a little bit as well and some other texts, but Revelation 4 will be our base text. And the title of this morning's message is A Glimpse of Heaven. A Glimpse of Heaven. Well, 2020 has been an interesting year, hasn't it? Can you say amen to that? My goodness, so much has happened in 2020. I was reading an article the other day of the historic events that have taken place not only in our country, but all over the world. And we started off with a bang on January the 2nd, with a third state of emergency was called in South Wales, Australia, due to massive brush fires. Do you remember that? Seems like 10 years ago now. On January 7th, the World Health Organization, the WHO, was notified of the coronavirus disease. On January the 8th, a Ukrainian flight crashes killing all 176 passengers on board. January 11th, China records its first coronavirus death. can't believe that was that long ago. January 16th, the impeachment trial begins of President Trump. January 20th, the first coronavirus case is reported in the U.S. in the state of Washington. January 23rd, in Wuhan, China, it was the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. It goes on lockdown, impacting 11 million residents in that part of China. On January 26th, Kobe and Gigi Bryant, along with seven others, died in a helicopter crash. Obviously, that was just a a local thing, but really global when you think about the sports world and how people um, were impacted by that. February 5th, President Trump is acquitted by the Senate on both articles of impeachment. March 10th, Italy becomes the first country to implement a nationwide lockdown. March 11th, the WHO, World Health Organization, declares the coronavirus a pandemic. By April 2nd, global coronavirus cases surpass 1 million people. And then, of course, we can go on and on, but May 25th, the arrest and killing of George Floyd. And now for about a month or so, devastation in our cities, in our state, all over the country, and in certain parts of the world as well. What a year, huh? What a year. Amazing. And for these and many other reasons, I think, if you're like me, it's very easy for us to become very distracted, to lose sight of the big picture, to lose perspective of what is important in life when we see all of these things that are taking place. I know it's been a challenge for me to keep the big picture in mind, and I can only imagine uh, for you that it's been the same. But even in the midst of that, as God's people, we need to keep the big picture in mind, right? One of the things that I used to love doing is, is flying. I haven't been able to do that for a few years because of health reasons and all of that. And whenever I go on flights with other partners I was traveling with, I would always fight for the window seat. One, so I can get some sleep, right? And uh, two, so that um, I could actually look out um, and look below as we took off. Because the higher you go on the plane, the more that you're able to see the, the layout of the land. I remember my wife telling me that it sort of like resembles looking down at a quilt, right? As you, you keep going higher and higher on this plane. From above, as you're flying on this plane, you can, you can see the layout of the land, From above, you can see the divisions of the land. From above, high up in the sky, you can see mountain ranges and farming communities and all of that and clouds and glorious things you can see up there. 
I used to love flying and still do because from above, up high in the sky, I get perspective. I see the big picture. I'm able to see what I'm a part of, right? In a greater way. And brothers and sisters, I believe this is one of the wonderful benefits of the Word of God. And especially even passages like the one we're going to look at this morning. It's from passages like these in Revelation 4 and 5 and Ezekiel 1 and and Isaiah chapter 6. And wonderful passages like these. Really all of Scripture. From these passages we we can gain perspective. We can see the big picture. So that we live on this earth with joy hope and peace in light of the big picture, in light of where we are headed. And so from our passage this morning in Revelation 4, I want us to ponder and consider this morning four perspective-shaping realities that you and I should be mindful of as we live on mission here on this earth. These are four perspective-shaping realities that we are to live in the light of if we are to live with joy, peace, and hope, and even with a sense of purpose as far as making disciples on this earth. These realities shape our perspective. These realities um, inform our outlook of, of life so that we may live victoriously. First of all, I want us to be mindful that there's a real place that we're looking forward to. The first perspective shaping reality that you and I must ponder is that there's a real place that we're looking forward to. In fact, we're awaiting a completely different place than when we are a part of right now. You know, so many people right now are primarily focused on not only reforming society, but deconstructing society altogether. People are focused on, on this is the answer. If we just do away with all of these things, if we just destroy the world as it is right now, especially our own country, we can recreate this sort of utopian society where everything is perfect, where everything is ideal, where there are no more quote-unquote injustices in our world. But we know that that's not the answer. We know that that's not the answer. As Christians, we understand that. That there is a real place that we are anticipating very soon, and that place is called what? Heaven. Heaven. And we're reminded of this. And this wonderful, of this wonderful place by the Apostle John, as he was transported to this place in the book of Revelation, to heaven itself, to the very corridors of God himself. John was to, was to write for the benefit of the believers during that time that they might have hope, and for us as well, by way of application, that we might have hope of the things that are to come. So the Apostle John is transported to this place called heaven. What did he see? Notice verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, that's the Scripture's way of saying, pay attention. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. Wow. God is going to fill in John as to his coming wrath and judgment poured out on the the world. But part of that, and at the very beginning, John gets the distinct privilege of getting a glimpse of his and our future home. You see, the Bible is very clear about the fact that this world is not our home. That there is a place called heaven that we will be and we need to be anticipating that wonderful place in fact in philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 this is what the apostle paul writes to the philippian believers he says for our citizenship christians believers is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior the lord jesus christ He says, our citizenship for the Apostle Paul to write during those days about citizenship was highly significant for them. Because if you were a Roman citizen, different than many countries of the world, that Roman citizenship brought many certain rights to you, many privileges to you as a Roman citizen. Paul says, nah, don't put your your focus on that. 
Don't put your focus on the fact that you are a Roman citizen. Put your focus on the fact that you are a citizen of heaven, that you are a pilgrim, that you are an alien on this earth. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, listen to how Peter comforts his persecuted brethren by reminding them that they will obtain, he says, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I love those words. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. He's talking about the certainty of this inheritance in a place called heaven. This is not wishful thinking that the believer looks to. This is not, I hope that I can get there. This is not, well, I hope things turn out well. Maybe I will get there. He says, no, look forward to this inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fit away. It's been reserved in heaven for you, believer. For you, Christian. In fact, later on in 1 Peter 2.11, he calls believers to realize that they are aliens and strangers who are to abstain from fleshly lusts in this world which wage war against the soul, he says. Keep yourself pure, set apart from those things because you don't belong to this world. You're an alien, you're a pilgrim, you're a stranger just passing through this world. I hope that that's your perspective, brothers and sisters. That this world is not your home. That this world is not my home. I love John chapter 14 where on the night of his betrayal, the Lord Jesus comforts his disciples with these words. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Obviously, for a while, his disciples would lose sight of this promise and these words, remember? They abandoned him that very night, all of them. And they struggled through the next days after that. But later on, how sweet those words would have been to the apostles, to the disciples. Remember the, remembering the fact that Jesus would one day come back. He was preparing a place for them. He was their high priest. Beloved, heaven is a real place. This is where ultimately you and I belong. It's our real home. And when the Bible speaks to believers about heaven, we are instructed to anticipate, to live in an anticipatory kind of way. In a way that we are looking forward to that sure hope that will not pass away, no matter what's going on in this world. Listen to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, if you, believer, have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things where? Above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set or be intent on the the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Beautiful words. Beautiful words. This has pertinence, doesn't it? For the way that we even understand death. Which for many people in this world, death is the worst thing that can possibly happen to them. Not for the believer. Not for the Christian. C.H. Spurgeon says, Death to the wicked is the king of terrors. To the saint, the commencement of glory. I love that. Death for us in the physical realm as believers, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is the commencement of glory for you. This is not our best life now, right? We're awaiting that. An eternity in the presence of God. And again, this is so important for us. To remember that there's a real place that we're looking forward to. Because there are so many people, beloved, who are putting so much stock on the things of this world. On destroying society. On creating a new home where no more injustices will exist. Again, on some kind of utopian society that is perfect and ideal. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, we understand that our hope is not in the here and now. Amen? It isn't. It's in what the Lord Jesus is to bring. 
This does not mean that we don't care about what's taking place. I think we've covered a lot of that in previous sermons. This does not mean that we are indifferent to the things that we are seeing around us, that we shouldn't speak the truth and love into those things, into hatred and violence and all of those things. It doesn't mean that we don't engage those things in a Christ-like manner. I think we've made that point again and again and again. But I think it does mean that we keep the big picture in mind and what we're looking forward to. And that is heaven. And seeing our great God face to face. Now, as wonderful as this place heaven is, it wouldn't mean anything if God wasn't there, right? If God wasn't there. The second perspective shaping reality that we must be mindful of is the fact that there is a royal person who is presently reigning. We must keep in mind that there is a royal person who is presently reigning. The Bible says that one day... Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will, future tense, with certainty, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. This is certain for the future. That one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of His Father. And we love the truth of that future reality. But how often we forget that God is presently sitting on His throne. How often we forget about this. And this is what John sees in this, in this heavenly temple, that God is on His throne. In fact, the throne room is the, the central place of focus here in Revelation chapter 4. Twelve times, just in chapter 4, brothers and sisters, there is mention of this throne. Thirty-seven times or so in the letter of Revelation, the focus is on the throne in this great letter. The central theme of this huge temple of indescribable beauty is what happens, who is sitting on that throne, and what happens in and around that throne. Because we're not just talking about any other throne. It's the ultimate throne. The throne of God Almighty Himself. His throne. It's a royal throne. It's a throne of a monarch. It's a throne of a a great king. The ultimate great king. No other king trumps over this king here that we see in Revelation chapter 4. No one else. And His glory is so evident by what John describes here. Look at verse 2. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Notice that that John doesn't name the one sitting on the throne there by name. Yet we know specifically that this is God the Father. We're going to see later on in chapter 5 that this is God the Father. But he now attempts to describe this king. He attempts to describe his majesty. And I say attempts because the point is not to try to overdefine what John is describing here. Because the fact is that human language falls terribly short when describing such a scene, doesn't it? This is why John uses the word like so many times, multiple times. Eight times he uses his word like. He's trying to come up with images and language, language that best describes God's majesty, God's glory, God's splendor. Watch this. Look at verse 3. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. Interesting. As John beholds God sitting on the throne, he describes him by the two most beautiful stones he can think of in that moment. He was like a jasper stone. This particular stone was most likely not dull or opaque like our modern stone. But most believe, if you will turn with me to Revelation chapter 21, turn with me there, Revelation 21 and verse 10, most believe that it's these verses that give us a a better idea of what John is talking about here. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 10, John says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. 
coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance, the new Jerusalem, was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear what? Jasper. Crystal clear jasper. There in Revelation 21, 11, the, the jasper stone represents a sort of watery, crystalline, bright kind of stone. And I think it's the, the same idea here in Revelation 4, 3. So majestic, so glorious, so splendorous is God that he is like a translucent rock crystal as John is describing him, like a gorgeous crystal clear stone resembling the most precious of diamonds. That's how precious he is. He is awesome. He also describes him to be, look at verse 3, like a sardius in appearance. A sardius was a fiery, deep red stone. Something like a, a carnelian, which is a reddish-orange stone. And these colors are, are significant. And what's significant about, about the, the combination of these two precious stones is that in certain places in Scripture, we see this, this similar mixture of, of radiant white light, like the diamond-like jasper here, and fire like the sardius. And usually, the blinding white light represents God's glory and His utter holiness. And the fire represents His Intense, righteous indignation, his holy wrath against those who rebel against his sovereign rule. And so the combined description might very well be pointing to these aspects of God's character. His holiness on the one hand, and on the other hand, his, because of his holiness, his righteous indignation and wrath against sin, because he is holy. And these would be consistent with the theme and revelation of the coming judgment and the wrath of God that he's going to bring upon those who reject his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to take note about something else as John further describes God. That though God is holy... And God is judge. He is also a merciful, covenant-keeping God. I think the imagery that follows in verse 3 describes this. Notice the middle of verse 3. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. The emerald is like a greenish rock, a greenish gemstone. And while, again, we need to be cautious not to overly press too much meaning into these symbols that John is describing here, most believe that the green shades represent the, the grace and the mercy of God. And you've seen a rainbow in the Old Testament, right? Again and again, the rainbow here is especially significant because of Old Testament scriptures, such as the ones in Genesis and Exodus, where the presence of a heavenly rainbow was often a reminder of what? God's faithfulness of the fact that God was a covenant-keeping God with his ethnic people, Israel. It was a reminder that even though people fail him and they don't deserve his kindness, God is always merciful. He is still gracious to people who don't deserve anything but wrath and condemnation. He is faithful to his promises. Notice in verse 4, surrounding the central throne, there were also 24 thrones. These could be a special class of mighty angels, some have proposed, some elite class of angelic beings with high authority belonging to the court of heaven, but most likely they are representative Christians of the church. This is an awesome scene, brothers and sisters. I think we have, when we use that word awesome so oftentimes, as just in our interaction with one another, we have overuse that word so much, haven't we? You might say, oh, the other day, brother, I went to this place in L.A. and I had an awesome burger, right? Well done. Awesome chili fries. The other day, I bought some awesome shoes. Boy, that basketball player, he can dunk. He is what? Awesome. You know what? All of those things pale in comparison to what we behold here in heaven and what we will see in heaven. God alone is awesome. God alone is astounding, amazing. We are awestruck when we behold who He is. I just gave you a bunch of A's right there, right? Awesome, astounding, amazing. Awestruck we should be when we see God. God alone is awesome. Look at verse 5. 
Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of of thunder. Peals of thunder there refers to loud ringing, continuous, repeated, deafening kind of thunder. I mean, the, the energy, the electricity, the power proceeding from this central throne is amazing. It is astounding. Coming from God. We've all heard the deafening, the, the heart-stopping sounds of, of thunder and lightning, haven't we? We get chills and goosebumps whenever we, whenever we experience phenomena like that or we hear things like that. We cringe and we're fearful of those kinds of things. Brothers and sisters, all of that pales in comparison to God's divine energy and power. It reminds me of my, my first visit to see the Yosemite Falls many years ago. And our three boys were very little at the time. And I remember that at one point, my boys and I decided to, to climb the rocks and get closer to the base of the waterfalls. And as we made our way towards the waterfall, the closer that we got, the more deafening the sound. The more awestruck we were at the, the waterfall crashing with full force upon the rocks. It was a fearful sight. We didn't want to get any closer lest we, lest we be, we be uh, killed, Right? What John is describing here is the absolute, awesome power and sovereignty of God, His majesty, His glory, His splendor as the royal reigning King. He is awesome. He's an awesome God. Brethren, can I ask you today, is this how you think of God? These last few weeks and months... How often have you opened up Scripture, His Holy Word, and beheld the majesty of God on the pages of His Holy Word as His Word describes Him and not as you describe Him? Not as the world describes Him. As a wimpy, indifferent, powerless deity of their choice. Is this your picture of God? Is this how you think of God? Because this is who he is, listen to me, right now. This is who he is. In the present, he is a reigning monarch. And the danger for us during these difficult times is to get so caught up in what's taking place in our world and to begin to believe the lie that God is no longer on his throne. We can become so earthly minded that we are no heavenly good. And forget about the fact that we worship this God. God is not shaken by what's happening. He's not sitting in heaven. Oh, no, I, I can't believe this is happening. I wasn't expecting this to happen. I guess I'm going to go to plan B now. That's not who God is. He's still on his throne. You know what's happening right now? His plan from before the foundation of the world, before the universe was created, he set forth a plan. It is being unfolded as we speak. People are hearing the gospel. Today and yesterday and tomorrow, people from all over the world are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're turning from their sins. They're putting their trust in Jesus and being added to the heavenly choir. God's plan is unfolding. The Lord is not slow about His promise, Second Peter 3.9. But it's patient toward all, not wanting for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Oh, God is at work. And he has his people here on earth on mission because we can worship him perfectly in heaven. Why are we here? To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live out good works so that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. In the way that we trust God, in the way that we work well in the midst of the difficulties, in our perspective and outlook as people interact with us, in our unity with one another so that we show the world a unity that is profound, that comes from an internal change of the heart that can only come through the gospel. That's why we are here on mission, brothers and sisters. God is working. God is working. He's on His throne. Let us not despair. Even in moments of weakness, let us confess that to the Lord. Oh, Father, thank you for these pictures of you, that you are on your throne, that you are working in the lives of people. You're accomplishing your purposes. And can I add this as well? 
If God is the central focal point in heaven, then that is the way that it must be here on earth for us as well. Everything else is peripheral. God is central. God is central. You know, I don't remember much about my wedding day. I don't remember much. I don't know how, some of you who are married, if you remember every little detail, maybe some of you ladies do. But for us guys, generally speaking, I don't remember a whole lot. So much was happening. I mean, there was so much activity. I don't even remember specifically the food that we served. And I know we sat down and planned all this stuff, right? I don't remember all the people that were there except some key people. I don't even remember, frankly, we had nine people on our wed- in our wedding party, guys and girls. I don't remember all the names of those people. I forget. I don't remember all of those things. But I'll tell you what. One particular moment I will never forget. And that is when my better half, my bride, came in through the back door as I was standing in the front with the pastor waiting for her to walk down the aisle. All of a sudden, all eyes turned to the back to look at the bride. And my eyes were fixed. I mean, I put on my glasses. I made sure that my eyes were clear so that I could see here. I never wanted to forget that moment. I've never forgotten it. All focus was on her. All attention was on her. Nothing else mattered. Everything else was secondary. Everything was peripheral. And if I was going to make sense of anything in that room, it would be through my marriage with her. That's all that mattered. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that that's the way that it needs to be by the grace of God and by the power and the strength that the Spirit of God supplies. That's the way it should be in our perspective toward God. He is central in heaven, and we ought to live in the light of that on earth where we have a Godward perspective rather than a man-centered one. Just ask yourself in the quietness of your heart, as you reminisce about the last few days and weeks and months, especially in 2020. How often times have you been guilty of having a man-centered perspective rather than a Godward one? Where you put people's philosophies, ideas, videos that you were watching, social media news, all of those crazy, horrible things that were taking place, that instead of seeing those things through the lenses of a Godward perspective, instead you believed and drank the Kool-Aid of the world. I think if we were honest, all of us would confess to the Lord, Lord, there have been many times when you haven't been my central focus on earth as you are in heaven, right? Many times. Let us not forget, brothers and sisters, that he is a reigning royal king, our great God. No matter what's happening on earth, we must not lose sight of the big picture. Was not lose sight of where our home is, our sovereign God. And thirdly, we should be mindful of the wonderful reality of a resounding praise that will be our eternal privilege. A resounding praise that will be our eternal privilege. You see, on earth, it should be our daily, heartfelt practice to praise God. Why? Because this is what's presently going on and will be going on forever and ever and ever in heaven. Look at verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Who are these four living creatures? They are cherubim. These incredible angelic beings often associated in Scripture with God's holy power. And here they are like a divine war machine ready to unleash judgment on the nations at God's orders. That's who these guys are. But in the meantime, what are they doing in verse 8? Day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. What are these angelic beings, these fearsome angelic beings doing? They are praising God, worshiping Him. These words are reminiscent of Isaiah 6.3, right? We read that passage before where heavenly beings are continually singing, hovering over the, 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 um, the, the, all, the um, throne, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord 
of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Three times they're declaring holy, holy, holy for emphasis. It's emphatic to emphasize the fact that God is holy, that God is morally perfect. He is morally pure. But hear me, also that he is unique. The holiness of God describes his otherness. The fact that he's set apart from anyone. He's the incomparable one. No one is like God. He is holy, holy, holy. This is who he is. There is a sense in which his holiness applies to all of his attributes. God is holy or incomparable in his power. No one rivals the power of God. He's almighty. He is holy in his love. No one loves like God. He is holy in his justice and his wrath. No one hates sin as God does, as an overflow of his holiness. No one judges perfectly and always makes the right decisions as God does. He's holy in his justice. He's holy in his wisdom and in his knowledge. No one knows perfectly as God does. No one is always able to act perfectly and in accordance with his character as God does. He is the incomparable one. He is the holy, majestic one. He's holy in all of his attributes. And because of who he is, there's a resounding praise continually in heaven and will be, brothers and sisters, forever and ever and ever. Look at verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne. Notice that in verse 10, they fall down. That's a posture of utter reverence, of utter respect for God, of of them being awestruck at the sight of who God is. Just like John, back in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 17, says that he fell at his feet like a dead man when he saw the Lamb of God. When he saw Jesus, this is after 50 years of John having not seen Jesus face to face. 50 years later, he doesn't go up and high-five Jesus. He doesn't go and give him a, a hug. It says that he fell like a dead man at his feet. God is the focal point of this heavenly scene and all respond with reverence, all respond with resounding praise. Look at the middle of verse 10. And they worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. See, because of who God is, Because he's creator, because he's sustainer, because he has all power, he is holy, he is worthy of praise, worthy of complete worship. Can I ask you this morning, are you living to worship God? Are you living to worship God? Do you praise God? No matter what difficulties you are experiencing, would you say, you know what, things are hard? This is a hard situation that we're in. I don't even know. There's a lot of questions that I have. I'm perplexed. I'm confused oftentimes. But praise God that he's sovereign. Praise God that he's holy. Praise God that that he is is glorious. Praise God above all that he has saved me so that I have a, a, a hope that is undefiled and uncorruptible will not fade away. Praise God. Do you worship him, brothers and sisters? Is it your daily practice and daily habit to to behold God on the pages of his word and be driven to to prayer? That's what we're trying to foster even Wednesday nights as a a church all the more because we're, we're not where we need to be as far as dependence upon the Lord and praising him as we should. So we're trying to foster that even as a body on Wednesday nights. If you haven't been joining at 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights, you need to do that. We need to do that. We need to depend upon our Heavenly Father and worship and and praise Him regardless of what's taking place. The psalmist says in Psalm 16 and verse 11, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. Do you find joy, pleasure in being with God? Sitting at His feet every day, praising Him, 
cultivating a Godward focus toward him? Can I submit to you that this is the single greatest problem at the present time, all right? God created every human being, regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity, to give him glory, to enjoy him, and to live for him. And people are not doing that. They've turned their backs on God, their creator. And we live in his world. We live on earth. We drink his water. We eat his food. We partake of all of the delicacies of earth, and yet we don't give him thanks. That's how Romans chapter 1 verse 21 describes the world. For even though they knew God, they did not honor or glorify him as God or give thanks. But they became futile, that is useless, vain in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It's a story of our world right now, brothers and sisters. Rather than praising and worshiping God, what have we done? People have recreated God. People have put the great idol of self first, number one, numero uno. That's what people have done. This is our problem. We weren't created to worship and live for self. We are created to live, enjoy, and worship God. That's why we are here. Young people, that's why you are here. Kids, that's why you were born into this world. To love and enjoy and worship God. Because he's been so good to us and so kind to us, has he not? So if you're going to live with joy, peace, and hope during these difficult times, listen, your perspective and my perspective must be shaped by the great realities of our eternal home in heaven a king who is presently reigning, the privilege that we have and we will have of praising our great God forever and ever and ever. And fourthly, we must be mindful of a redeemed people with whom we will enjoy eternity. A redeemed people with whom we will enjoy eternity. This is so, so significant for us in the light of the hatred and the violence that we are seeing in our country Because you see, brothers and sisters, it's not just fearsome angelic creatures of all types, of all ranks, of all levels of power and authority that will be in heaven. There will also be the redeemed. The redeemed. Us. But before we can get to that, I want to show you something. Before we can get to the redeemed, we must direct our attention to the redeemer. Because without the Redeemer, the, or without the Lamb of God, there, are, there is no redemption. There is no salvation of sins. There is no place called heaven for those who do not trust in Christ and in His atoning sacrifice. Without Him, there is no us. And Jesus appears here in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Notice with me. Revelation 5 and verse 1. I saw... In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, him is God the Father here, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. This is the the book or the scroll that is the title deed to the earth, if you will. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book or the scroll and to break its seals? He's asking the whole world, who is worthy? Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. John's watching all of this. Remember, he's seeing these things. He's just amazed and and awestruck by all of this stuff. Then he responds in verse 4, then I began to weep. Greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or the scroll or to look into it. Here is John the Apostle in a moment of of despair, of hopelessness, because the angel is crying out, no one qualifies to be able to break the seals here, to open this book. John is in despair. 
Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, or in other words, pay attention, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and to break its seals. In other words, there's one who qualifies by virtue of his atonement, by virtue of his death. Look at verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he, the Lamb, came and took the book out of the right hand of him, God the Father, who sat on the throne. And when he, the Lamb, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Wow. Wow. And they sang a new song in verse 9, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And purchased or redeemed for God with your blood. That is through his death. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Notice that brothers and sisters. They worship Christ because he came and died and paid for sin. Making it possible for all of this to take place. For there to be worshipers. And notice in the middle of verse 9, you purchase for God with your blood, by virtue of your death, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Wow. The exalted Christ through his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection purchased or redeemed a people for himself, made up of all ethnicities, regardless of background, regardless of your baggage, regardless of skin tone, regardless of all of those things. It was always God's plan from before the foundation of the world to call a people to himself through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Please especially pay attention. They are from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Later on, look at verse chapter 7 and verse 9 with me. Chapter 7, verse 9. says, After these things I looked, and behold, a, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. I love that. In white robes. In ancient times, white robes were born and for celebration. And here the significance is, this is symbolic of their holiness. Of their purity. Of the fact that they were set apart through the blood of Jesus Christ by faith in Christ. These are saints. Set apart once. Redeemed out of the marketplace of slavery to sin. And purchased for God through Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about here. And they're clothed in white robes. These are the redeemed. These are Christians. I want us to think about the wonderful implication of this, brothers and sisters. There has always been, from before the foundation of the world, God's plan out of His great love for us and for humanity, to send His Son Jesus, His only begotten Son Jesus, into the world to suffer to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, to rise from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that whoever believes in Jesus can be saved. That if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can be part of the redeemed. You can be part of this heavenly choir someday. No sin is so great that God can't forgive you. Christ has died on the cross in order to make it possible for this heavenly choir to exist, praising him forever and ever and ever and ever. And the great Redeemer, Jesus, has made it possible. Brothers and sisters, this is the big picture. This is the big picture that I think oftentimes right now, in the midst of all of the dust of the stuff happening in our world that we lose sight of. 
We lose sight of this. This is why racism, in its extreme sense, or prejudice and partiality, in its more subtle sense, or hatred in the heart, in its more secret sense, or indifference in the heart towards those not like you, in its secret sense, are not to exist, be entertained, or coddled in the church of the redeemed of Jesus Christ. Amen? Because one day in heaven, this is not going to be an issue for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're all going to be together. And most likely the heavenly language that we'll all be singing will be Spanish. Okay? That's my vote. But it could be some other languages as well. I don't know. You know? Again, we can't read too much into this. Okay? But it could be Spanish, the heavenly language. We will all be in heaven together. Isn't that amazing? That's an implication for the way that we ought to live in the light of that right now. Let's live in the light of these perspective-shaping realities. All the redeemed will one day join this heavenly choir in resounding praise to God. And we need to live this out in the here and now, brothers and sisters, as a foretaste of the heaven that is to come on earth. A glimpse of heaven on earth is to be seen in the way that we flesh this out. What a heavenly scene. What a choir. I'm looking forward to that. Are you? And above all, what a God, what a Savior who's made this possible through the blood of Jesus Christ poured on the cross for us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, our hearts are full. Lord, because we long for this day. We long for heaven We long for a day when we will worship you unhindered and unclouded by sin anymore. A day when we will no longer have a guilty conscience that we impose on ourselves. A day when we can sing to you without pretense, without hypocrisy. Lord, we long for that day to worship you. But Father, our hearts are also zealous that your name would be known on this earth. Help us to live in the here and now on mission with joy and peace and hope. Oh, Lord, only you can bring that about by your grace in our hearts and lives. Please help us, Lord. Please be merciful and kind to your people. Things are hard in this world. Things are hard in our country. But, Father, you never command us to do anything that you have not granted us the grace to live out. We believe you. We trust you, Father. Help us to live by faith. Out of love and gratitude for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.